know, as we started the book of Galatians, we're talking about a lot of things that in today's world, you know, we don't hear a whole lot of. I mean, we use words like Judaizers and and all this stuff. It just seemed to be a little far-fetched, maybe a little out there. But what's happening here in Galatians, and we just need to remember this, is Paul is very strongly defending the fact that grace and God's mercy, that salvation comes through faith in Christ alone. That is freedom that comes because of what Christ has done for us. But these people who are called Judaizers, that we're not familiar with that terminology, are people who are coming in and trying to say, well, that's all fine and good, but you need to also add this to the gospel. You need to become a Jew first, then you can become a a follower of Jesus if you want, because really probably most of the Jews at that point in time kind of thought that this was going to eventually go away anyway. So if you you want to play around with this for a little while, that's fine. That's your, your call. But you still need to be a Jew first. And Paul is very vocal, very, the, the terminology in Galatians over and over again, I mean, he's like, I'm just overwhelmingly surprised at how you just keep falling away. And today's message, he, we're going to see him get a little uh, heated, I guess would be the best way to say it. But I want to talk about two men, a tale of two men. One of the men, uneducated, fisherman. You know, it wasn't that he was uneducated in the sense that he was ignorant. It just he didn't go to the official proper schools. He was probably educated at home. Uh, you know, he had to have some business sense because he was a, a pretty professional and, and well-to-do businessman. But he was uneducated. He was a fisherman. He, he really was, uh, he was one of the twelve. And, and as we see when Jesus calls the disciples... He's one of these guys that originally, you know, he goes kind of back to fishing. Jesus calls him, he follows Jesus for a little while, then he goes back to his fishing job. And Jesus comes and calls him a second time, and he follows Jesus for a while. And then we know that that he becomes what they called one of the three. Jesus had 12 disciples, but three of them became a little bit closer to him. And you say, well, that, that seems kind of unfair, kind of arbitrary that Jesus picked these three. But there was a rationale behind it. You know, James and John were brothers. They were ones that, that showed true devotion to Christ. And Peter did too. And he knew that these, these three had the potential to be the leaders of the coming church. Now, we do know that early on, James uh, was martyred and had his head cut off early on by Herod. But John and, and Peter go on to lead the church. And so here Peter is. He's one of these guys, but he's also the guy that The night before Jesus is crucified, he denies Jesus three times. And we always picture Jesus, uh, Jesus, I always picture Peter in the movies like he's, you know, this timid, shy, afraid kind of guy that that gives up at the end. But the the way that the terminology is used in knowing Peter's personality, it's really not that he gets scared. And he, he doesn't defend Christ and he, he denies him because he's scared. It really kind of gives the impression that it's more he's ticked off. And if you think through what happens prior to that time, Jesus has said, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to be, we're going to get there. They're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. Three days later, I'm going to rise again. And Peter says, no, wait a minute. That ain't going to happen. I'm going to do everything I can to keep that from happening. And Jesus 
You know, you'd think we'd go, hey man, I appreciate your spirit. Thanks a lot. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You know, your friend that you're trying to defend calls you Satan. You know, that's really not a way to win friends and influence people. And so, so Peter has that. And so now they're, they're here in the garden and Jesus is about to be arrested. All these people come to arrest him. And Peter is going to stand up and do exactly what he said. I'm going to defend you and I'm going to defend who you are. And he grabs a sword and he strikes and it says he cut off one of the, the men's ears. And you say, well, why would he cut off his ear? I mean, that doesn't seem like, I mean, that would be painful, but it's not really a lethal blow. Well, let's think through where he was swinging. He wasn't swinging for his ear. He was swinging to cut his head off. Just happened to hit his helmet and take an ear instead. And you think Jesus would go, man, thanks for standing up for me. What does he do? He picks the ear up off the ground. He puts it back on the guy's head and heals him. And he tells Peter, put your sword away. I've already told you, don't do this. So Peter's following and he's not afraid. He walks right up into the the garden where Jesus is being um, tried. And he's right there where he can see everything. He's not afraid, but he's just kind of ticked right now. And Jesus and, and these people come up and say, hey, we know you were with him. No, I wasn't. No. Yeah, we're pretty sure. You're from Galilee. Most of his followers are from Galilee. No. And finally, the third person asks, and he calls down curses. Look, I've already told you, and may I be struck dead if I was a follower of his. And Jesus looks, and, and it breaks his heart. Then he realizes what he's done. And he goes out and repents. So this is, this is Peter. Peter's the one who preaches the very first sermon we have recorded, first New Testament sermon we have recorded other than Jesus' speaking. And 3,000 people give their heart to the Lord. I mean, that's a big revival right there. That's a lot going on. And then in Acts chapter 10, we see Peter who this, he's a very dedicated Jew. He has a dream. And in this dream, a sheet comes down out of heaven and opens up and it's got pigs and badgers and all kinds of stuff that as a Jew he's not supposed to eat. And he's told, get up and eat this. Nope, not going to do it, man. This is a test, I know. The Lord's testing me. I refuse to eat it. And he's told three times to eat and then immediately someone knocks at the door. And he's asked to go to the home of a Gentile to share the gospel. And he goes and he shares the gospel in Cornelius' home. And Cornelius and his family give their heart to the Lord. And this is what it says at the end of chapter 10. Peter realizes that there is no partiality with God. That Jews and Gentiles alike can follow Christ. Matter of fact, in Acts 15, which is after what happens here in Galatia, is he's, he takes a stance with Paul and says, yes, Remember my story. God has opened the gospel up to the Gentiles too. This is Peter. So he understands this. Now the other person we want to talk about is Paul. Paul was raised to be a Pharisee. Now we give the Pharisees a hard time today because they gave Jesus a hard time and we look at them and we go, man, they were just a bunch of bad guys. But the reality is the Pharisees were the conservatives of the Jewish party. 
During the time that the Jews were taken away into captivity, the Pharisees were a group that were designed to protect the Scriptures. They memorized the Old Testament to the point where you could throw a dart and hit a scroll somewhere, and they'd call out the the reference and they could quote it to you. They were protecting the Scriptures. But because of that, because they wanted to protect it, they began to add a bunch of other laws to the whole thing. And that's where Jesus started having problems with them. It wasn't their interpretation of Scripture. It was all the added stuff that they started giving to Scripture that Jesus would go, look, you've read what it said here, and you're saying something different. And so, but Paul was raised to know the Scriptures. He was raised to protect the Scriptures. Very well educated, sat under one of the, the greatest teachers in the area at the time, Gamaliel. And so he's very well educated. Matter of fact, someone, I read someone one time who said the equivalent would be Paul would be able today to be able to talk to someone in Chinese and debate Confucianism and at the same time go to Oxford and in English be able to defend theology and then the next day go to Russia and in Russian to defend his position. Pretty educated, pretty well uh, educated man there, smart guy. He was also raised to despise the Gentiles. If you remember, you know, when he was fighting and he was going to go and arrest all these people, part of it was because it was branching out. Part of it was this Christ, this Messiah guy, is claiming something he shouldn't be claiming. But he's he's told to despise the Gentiles. Then on the way to Damascus, he encounters Christ. And Christ changes his heart and his life. And remember... Brian talked about it last week. He, for a while, he went off into uh, an area and kind of spent some time by himself. Then he went for 14 years and spent time with who? Peter. To learn, is this really what, what I'm hearing here? And so now, he has been given the gospel to the Gentiles. He says in one place that Peter, in Galatians, he said, Peter was called to reach to the Jews, I'm called to reach to the Gentiles. So that's why he's pretty frustrated with these Judaizers who are coming in and trying to distract the Gentiles from following Christ. So, you know, how did these two guys get along? They were close companions, spent a lot of time together. They both stood together in Acts 15 for the gospel to the Gentiles. But, what does he say here in Galatians chapter 2 beginning in verse 11? Remember, Peter and Cephas are the same person. That's what Paul talked about. I mean, Paul. Brian talked about last week. I'm I'm elevating you here to Paul. Um, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. And when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is pretty harsh. I mean, it's not even like Paul pulls Peter aside and says, hey, you know, let's talk. It's like he says right in front of everybody, Peter, you are messing up right now. You should not be doing this. 
Calling him out in front of everybody. And why is this such a harsh treatment? Why is he being so hard on Peter? Well, because Peter's compromise is dragging other people away. It's causing people, even Barnabas, who knows better, to be led astray. And Paul, because of his love for the church and the love for the truth of the gospel, is not going to let this happen. Is not going to let it stand. And because of Peter's position, Peter, they look at Peter as one of the leaders, he's going to get confronted differently than somebody else. Paul says, this isn't going to happen anymore. You've got to quit living like this. Because what was Peter doing? Well, Peter had, because of his situation with Cornelius, he was hanging out with the Gentiles. Now, whether or not he was eating food that wasn't kosher, we don't know. But at least he was hanging out at the table while other people were. It didn't bother him. He didn't have any kind of issue with hanging out with the Gentiles until these Judaizers showed up. When these Judaizers showed up, he kind of shunned these guys. Let Let me sit over here. I'm going to come hang out with my old buddies from Jerusalem. And that wouldn't have been bad if he was just hanging out with his old buddies, but it was like he wasn't, uh, you know, it, uh, I don't talk to these guys. You ever been in that situation? Where somebody who's your friend until somebody that doesn't like you comes along and they, uh, okay, I'm going to go hang out with these people instead. And because he's doing that, he's leading people astray because they're looking to him. How are you going to act in this? And the way he acts is not right with the gospel. So Paul says, this is not going to happen anymore. He confronts him to his face. He says, how can you, being a Jew and, and hanging out with the Gentiles, now when the Jews come, you're acting, asking the Gentiles to come and become a Jew. That is not the gospel. That is not how it works. Now, we use a term today called compromise. And we use it in two different ways. One is it's a settlement of differences by arbitration or by consent reached by mutual concessions. In other words, you got two businesses wanting to merge and, and some of them are going, well, we have to kind of give up this and we're willing to give up this and, and we're willing to get, so we will compromise. You got somebody who says, or even in a, in a relationship, you know, I'm willing to say, okay, this isn't that important so that we can come together. We can come to a compromise. That's a good thing. The next definition's not. It's a concession to something derogatory or prejudicial, a compromise of principles. So a compromise can be good or bad. Here, Peter is compromising, and it's not good. He knows the truth, and he has compromised the truth to make himself comfortable. And therefore, Paul is dealing with it. Paul's rationale for why he deals with it, beginning in verse 15, for we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, through, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in order, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners in Christ, then is Christ in a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now, there's a lot. That's a mouthful. So let's explain 
what Paul's saying. Because it does sound like he's kind of coming down on the Gentiles there, right? We're Jews. We're not like those Gentile sinners. But his point is, the Jews have always said, we're righteous because we follow the law. The Gentiles are sinners because they don't follow the law. And so he's kind of using the terminology that people be familiar with. And he says, you know, if, if we as Jews and not these Gentile sinners were justified by the law, then we'd have something basically to stand on. But we're not justified by the law. We're justified by faith through Christ, in Christ just like they are. So really, we're sinners too. We, just, we need Christ. And is the fact that we're sinners make Christ a sinner? No, it doesn't. But we need to understand that we're not saved by the law. We're saved by faith in Christ. That's, that's his, his rationale for arguing and, and confronting Peter. Is you're going the wrong way. So, how can we prevent compromise? Either personally or as a church. How can we keep from giving in to compromise? First thing is to know your or our susceptibility. What is it in your life? What is that one area? Maybe more, but what is that one area that you know every time it comes up, it's going to cause you to sin? No matter what you do, you seem like you got it all taken care of, and boom. Or maybe it's not even sin. Maybe it's just a temptation. You know, for me... I could go to one of these bars down here and hang out all day long. I'm not going to be tempted to get drunk. A couple of reasons. Half the stuff I don't like. I was raised to not drink it, you know, and whether I do now or not. But the issue is, for me, it's not a temptation. It's really not something I go, wow, I want to do that. So know what you're susceptible to. If something there, and don't put yourself in that situation. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Anytime we think I can handle it, we're going to be in trouble. I can handle it. Because even my statement there about going to a bar... If I think I can handle it because I was raised to not get drunk, then that's the wrong rationale. I can handle it through Christ, but I need to still be careful and not put myself into a situation where I could fall, where I could get in trouble. Know the area where God, where you are tempted to give in and to compromise. And stay away from that situation. Protect yourself from that situation. And it's going to be different for every one of us. But we all know what that temptation is. Maybe there's certain television shows we shouldn't see. Certain movies we shouldn't go to. Certain people we shouldn't hang out with. Whatever it is. We know, we know where we're susceptible. The second thing is keep good company. 1 Corinthians 15, says this, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, how many of you heard that growing up? <laughs> okay. Do you know the context of the passage here? Anybody? The context of the passage is not just hanging out with the bad kids. 
context of the passage is hanging out with people who denied the resurrection. Paul's saying, don't hang around with these people. The resurrection is true. If the resurrection's not true, then we of all people are stupid. Because we meet together every Sunday to worship a God who didn't raise from the dead. He's still in the tomb. We might as well just go home now. But because the resurrection is true, don't hang out with those people who say it's not true and deny it because bad company corrupts good morals. So the issue here is not always just those obvious sinners we got to stay away from. It's staying away from people like Peter who are compromising the truth. And Paul's saying in this situation, don't compromise the truth. He's attacking Peter because he's compromising. He's backing away. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. You know, I've got good friends that I've known for 35, 40 years, most of them. That when we get together, we don't talk hardly ever. Some of them, they live live all different places. But when we talk, immediately, it's challenging one another. How's things going? What's God teaching you today? How can I pray for you? Because we have that kind of relationship. I have that relationship with others. You know, surround yourself with those people who are going to sharpen you, not drag you away. That's how we keep from compromise. That's how we keep... Because Peter compromised because he was afraid, and this was people that he had known, people he had hung out with in Jerusalem, and now they're there, and he's being tempted to, to give in and to, to fall away. So bad company. Get a, keep good company. The next thing is, be humble. Be humble. Now, I don't have a scripture passage for there, but I want us to think about King David. If you look historically, it seems like if you read through First and Second Samuel... It seems like what David did in his life and the sin that he committed that we are most familiar with seems worse than the sins that King Saul did. You know, I mean, if you look at it, King Saul says, hey, we're in the middle of a battle. If anybody eats before this battle is done, they're going to be killed. Well, his son doesn't know about it. He goes over and dips his staff in some honey to get some energy. So he says, I'm, I'm going to kill him. Well, that I mean, seems kind of seems harsh, but, you know, it doesn't seem like that. You know, he made a mistake, and, and, every, and the people stand up for Jonathan, and so he survives. And then he's told, okay, you go, and what we're going to do is you're going to go wipe out the Amalekites. Don't bring anything back. So he brings back the king and all the best of the land, And when he's confronted about it, he goes, hey, you know, I just brought back the good stuff so I can sacrifice it to the Lord. You know? And and when he's confronted about that, he says, well, really, the people twisted my arm. It's kind of their fault. They made me do it. I gave in. And after time and time again of being confronted about it, he finally, God says, you know what? I reject you. Because to obey me is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. 
So it doesn't seem like, I mean, you know, it seems like a good thing. I'm bringing back these nice lambs and, and goats to sacrifice to the Lord. It seems like he's trying to do the right thing. Now, David, on the other hand, David commits adultery, gets the woman pregnant to cover up his sin. He brings her husband back, gets him drunk, tries to send him home to be with his wife. His husband sleeps on the steps of the palace. So after he realizes, well, that ain't going to work, he sends his hu- her husband back to war with a note to, the, to his uh, immediate supervisor or captain. He says, look, hey, what y'all do is get right up against the building, right up against the, the uh, castle there. And when they start throwing things over the side, you back away and let Uriah be killed. You know, and rather than his captain going, hey, that's probably not a good idea, he does it, and Uriah's killed. So David has now committed adultery and killed the woman's husband so that he could cover up his sin. What's the difference between the two people? When Saul is confronted, he tries to defend himself. He tries to, to justify what he did. When David is confronted, he falls on his face before the Lord. And he confesses his sin. Read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. And you'll hear David's heart after he commits sin. See, the difference is the humility of David that said, I blew it. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart, because of his humility. If we compromise, don't try to justify it. Don't try to act like it's all okay. In humility... Confess your sin and get right with the Lord. Next, be informed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Know the truth. What does it say the truth says it does here? It does four things. It teaches you how to live. It reproves you when you blow it. It corrects you by giving you a new way to to live. And it trains you how to live that way. Over and over again. This is what you should do. You didn't do it. This is how you can fix it. Be trained in how to live it. This is what you're supposed to do. You didn't do it. This is how you can fix it. This is how you train to never blow it again. That's the way Scripture works. It's not some magical formula that if I just hold it against my head or sleep with it under my pillow, and then all of a sudden I can beat everybody at Bible trivia because I've memorized all these little facts about whose aunt was who and all that. No. It's there to to teach us and to reprove us and to correct us and to train us in righteousness that we may be equipped for everything. It says the man of God, man or woman, okay? I know Scripture is misogynistic or whatever you want to say, but it's just the terminology. The issue here is that the person of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. To keep from compromising, we need to understand and know what the Scriptures say and to live what the Scriptures say. The next, we need to be bold with each other. Bold with each other. Galatians 6.1 says this. 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It doesn't say, if anyone's caught in a transgression, call all your buddies and tell them about it. It doesn't say, if anyone is caught in a transgression, it says you who are spiritual, so let's call the elders. No. It's talking about you who are following Christ. If you see a brother sin or sister sin, deal with it. Talk to them. Sit down with them. Remembering, keep, keep watching yourself. Don't think you got... You know, that, I hear people all the time, well, you can't take a speck out of somebody's eye till you take the log out of your own eye. Isn't that what Jesus said? Yes, that's what Jesus said. But the point wasn't never confront sin. The point was realize you're susceptible too. Realize that you're not the perfect one up here telling everybody else how they're not perfect. But we all are called together to restore one another, to help one another be all that God has called. It's easy to live like a Christian. People say all the time, you don't live like a Christian. Praise God I don't live like a Christian. Because I know a lot of Christians. I don't want to live like them. (laughs) You know? It's easy to live like a Christian. It's impossible to live like Christ. But it is possible for Christ to be our life. Paul says it over and over again. Galatians 2, verses 20 and 21, what does he say? For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But let's go back to verse 20 again. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, you know what? It's not, I'm better than you, Peter. It's not that because I can, I've got the Old Testament memorized that I've got it all together. It's because myself and you have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer me trying to work up the energy to follow Christ and do it myself. It's that Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, it's by faith in what Christ has done for me, who gave himself for me. See, that's the issue. Nowhere in Scripture are we called upon to live like another Christian. We're called upon to let Christ live through us. What does Paul say in Philippians? For me, to live is Christ. Because there's not a single one of us in this room 
that can keep from compromise based on how good we are. There's not a single one of us who can just decide today, I've got it, now on, I'm never going to do this again. We can decide that today I'm saying, Lord, I need you. I need you to live through me. I need you to be my life. I used to ask teenagers all the time, does Christ want to be first in your life? And all of them say, yeah. And I say, no, he doesn't. He doesn't want to be first in your life because then there's priorities. And he can be shifted out of that from time to time. He wants to be your life. He wants to be your life at school, at work, in your home, with your wife, with your kids, with coworkers. He wants to be your life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we don't compromise. We know where we're weak. We, we hang out with people who will help us. We're, we're humble when we blow it. We seek to know the Scriptures and we... We challenge and inform and, and, and help one another be all that God's called us to be. So I want to ask you a question. Don't want you to answer out loud. I know sometimes I ask you to answer out loud. And I want you to answer out loud this time. Is there an area in your life where it seems like you continue to compromise? Continue to back away from what you know to be true. Continue to make commitments to not do that again, only to the next day to do it again. It's not a matter of you deciding today you're not going to ever do that again. But it's a matter of saying, Christ, I need you to be my life. And allow Him to be your life. Does that mean you'll never blow it? No. We always have to be careful and know our susceptibilities. But allow Christ to live through you. To change you. To work in you. That's what it means to follow Him. It's not a matter of me deciding, let me look at all these characteristics of Christ and see if I can measure up. I can't ever measure up. But as he lives through me and I trust him to live through me, then I can do what he's called me to do. Let's pray.